Good. Good morning. All right, well, for the benefit of you, those, uh, for those of you who weren't here last week or uh, weren't paying attention earlier when Nathan was speaking, um, we've left Acts now, and we're starting a series from the Old Testament, a series that we've entitled Jesus Through Old Testament Eyes. And as Keith pointed out last week, it's interesting that in the very last chapter of Acts, we see a reference to Paul talking to the Jews about Jesus from um, the, the, uh, from the law of Moses and from the prophets. In other words, our Old Testament. And that's exactly what we are going to try and do ourselves. So the overarching theme of this series is from Hebrews 12, where we're encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus. And why do we want to do this? Well, because we want him to be the center of our lives. We want him to be our passion and our joy, our hope and our future, our rock and our encourager our Lord and our Saviour. And through the Old Testament, we want you to see that this, Jesus has always been all of these things. Jesus has been the focus of the story of humanity right since the beginning and will be into eternity. So as we look at the Old Testament, what we want, what we want to try and do is capture some of the early part of that story. So we'll be looking at people and events and prophecies and rituals and even objects, all sorts of things that show that right from the beginning, Jesus and his work was there at the center. And some of these are going to be quite obvious and clear. Others you might find more surprising. But our prayer is that through it all, you will find that Jesus grows larger in your heart and your mind. So this morning I'm going to start with one of the more obvious passages, and we're going to go back into Exodus and look at Jesus, the Passover lamb. So first I'm going to tell you a story. Now I've embellished it slightly in places just to help get your imaginations going. But I haven't changed anything significant, and I hope that the changes will be fairly obvious to you. But you can read the original for yourselves in the book of Exodus from chapters 12 through to chapters, uh, from 7 through to 12, and I encourage you to do that. Actually, it's very exciting because scholars have just published a diary that they found in recent excavations in Bet Carmen. That's a small town in the south of Israel. It was written by a teenage boy um, who was called Gershom, which quite by coincidence is the same name as Moses' oldest son. And it was written at the time of the Exodus, so it's fascinating. And of course, it's really relevant for our message today. So I'm just going to read you a few short extracts. February the 12th, the 24th, 1446 BC. Dear diary, no dinner again today. Well, not proper dinner anyway. Mum and Dad just don't have the time or the energy. Ever since Moses went to Pharaoh to ask him if we Israelites could go out to the desert to pray and to worship, Pharaoh has become even worse. He's insisting that we find our own straw to make bricks. But he hasn't reduced the quota by a single brick. And of course, it takes way longer. Everyone's exhausted and in a pretty bad mood. In all the 400 years we've been slaves here in Egypt, I don't think we've ever had it so bad. February the 25th, 1446 BC. Dear diary, had a terrible row with my sister today. She says it's all Moses' fault and he should never have come back to Egypt. Now, I know that's a lot, what, a lot of, what a lot of people are saying, but what does she know? I think he's pretty amazing. I mean, he's an old man, 88 years old, I think, and he's willing to go and confront Pharaoh. I think that's pretty brave. 
Not that it's done any good. Still cool, though. April the 4th, April the 4th 1446 BC. Dear diary, I know I haven't written anything for ages. The last couple of months have been completely crazy. Moses went back to Pharaoh and gave him a message from God. He said that because Pharaoh didn't let us go out to worship, he was going to give a sign, a sign to prove that it was God that was speaking through Moses. And the sign was that the Nile and all the water would turn to blood. And it did. It was awful. All the fish died and everything stank. After that, Moses went back to Pharaoh and asked again if we could go. And when Pharaoh said no, the whole land was overrun with frogs. Then we had gnats, and then flies, and then all the livestock died, and then we had hail like you've never seen it. It didn't come where we are, though. And then there were the locusts, millions of them. And still Pharaoh won't let us go. And now it's gone dark. I mean, completely black. For two whole days and nights, we've had not a single bit of light. We're all at home because we can't do anything. Still, it's given me a chance to catch up on my diary, even if I do have to do it by candlelight. April the 8th, 1446 BC. Something's up. Two strange things. One is that Moses has told us to go to our neighbours and ask them for gold and silver jewellery. And they're giving it. Loads of it. Weird. The other is that I don't think we're going out to the desert to worship. We've been told to pack everything, and I mean everything. Why would we need to do that for a three-day festival? I said something to Dad, and he told me not to be stupid, but something's going on. I don't think Moses plans for us to come back. April the 9th, 1446 BC. This is getting serious. Moses sent out instructions today to all the people. I've written it down just as we were told it, and this is Exodus chapter 12. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then you and your nearest neighbors must get together enough people so that you can eat the whole of the lamb. The lamb has to be without blemish. It has to be male, and it has to be one year old. But it doesn't matter whether it's a sheep or a goat. We have to keep it until the 14th day of this month. And then on that day, everyone has to kill their lamb at twilight. We've got to take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house where we're eating it. We've got to roast the meat on the fire and then eat all of it that night. And we've got to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. We're not allowed to eat any of it raw or boiled in water. It has to be roasted, the whole lot, head, legs, and the inner bits. We're not to leave anything till morning, but if anything is left, it has to be burned. And then he told us that while we're eating it, we have to have our belts done up, sandals on our feet, and staffs in our hand, and we've got to eat in a hurry. Then he told us what was going to happen. On that night, so that will be the 14th, God is going to pass through the land of Egypt, and he will strike the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, both man and animals, and on all the gods of Egypt, he will execute judgment. He said that he is the Lord. The blood on the houses where we are will be a sign. And when God sees the blood, he will pass over us and no plague will come on us and destroy us when he strikes the land of Egypt. 
Then we were told that this day is to be a memorial day for us. We're to keep it as a feast for the Lord. We're going to do this right down through the generations. This is to be a statute forever. We must keep it as a feast. For on this very day, God said, he brought every last one of us out of the land of Egypt. And then he added the last instruction, that none of the bones of the lamb were to be broken. So I was right. God is going to set us free from our slavery. I am slightly worried, though. Well, because I'm the oldest son. I hope that God sees the blood on the doorpost. April the 15th, 1446 BC. It happened. We did all that we'd been told to do. And then, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord, as you have said. So we're off. We're going as fast as we can, but we still can't quite believe it. We keep looking over our shoulder because we expect them to come chasing after us. Is it possible that at last we're actually free. And for today, we're going to leave them there, finally free and on their way out of Egypt, out of slavery, and on the start of their journey into the promised land. And I've told it as a story because it's so familiar and I want to try and engage your imaginations a bit, but I don't want you to get the idea this is just a story. This is an event that actually took place some 3,500 years ago. And it was a pivotal moment in the history of the Israelites. And it prefigured a pivotal moment in our own history. And at the center of both stories was a lamb. And it's this lamb that is the focus of our attention today. So let me start by recapping the main points of the story in case there are some of you who are unfamiliar with it. So the Israelites were in a sorry state. Many years earlier, about 400 years or so ago, Joseph's brothers and father and um, all their families had met, um, um, joined Joseph in Egypt to escape a great famine. And initially, they were welcomed by the Egyptians because, of course, Joseph had paid, played such a, a key role in um, helping the Egyptians through that time of famine. But over the coming centuries, the numbers of the Israelites multiplied much greater than that of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians came to fear and to hate the Israelites. And so the, uh, the Egyptian solution was to make the Israelites their slaves, and they worked them ruthlessly. So the Israelites were powerless against the might of the Egyptians. There was nothing they could do. They were slaves. They had no hope. They had no future. So they cried out to God, and God heard their groaning and remembered them. So God raised up a leader in the person of Moses. And you remember how he went before Pharaoh and asked him um, if he would let God's people, the Israelites, go. And each time um, Pharaoh said, no, God sent a plague. And each time then, um, um, when Moses went back, Pharaoh said yes, and then changed his mind um, uh, because Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't let the people go. And then finally we come to the events we just looked at um, this morning. God said he would bring the worst plague of all. He said that he would pass through the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family, from the highest in the land right through to the lowest, even including the animals. But, he said, he would spare his own people. He would not bring the plague on them. But in order to be spared, they had to follow some very specific instructions. On a certain day, 
they had to take a lamb. And this wasn't to be any old lamb. This had to be a male lamb without blemish, a perfect, healthy, and valuable lamb. They had to take this lamb, they had to bring it into the house with them and let it live with them for four days. And after the four days, they had to kill the lamb, taking care not to break any of its bones. And they had to take the blood of the lamb, they had to paint it over the doorposts and the lintel of their house. Then they had to roast the lamb and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they had to all do all this while they were dressed and ready to move. And God promised that when he saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over that house. He promised that he wouldn't execute judgment on the families in those houses that had blood over the doors. And that is, in fact, what happened. On that terrible night, God passed through the land of Egypt, and the firstborn in every household was killed. But where the blood was on the door, no one was killed. And we're told there was terrible anguish through the land of Egypt, and as God judged the people. And this time, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said to him, Get up and go. Leave the land of Egypt and take the people with you. And so they got up and went. God delivered his people from the Egyptians. And say so this was a key moment in the history of the Israelite nation. And God wanted them to remember it. So he gave them instructions, instructions for a very special meal, a meal to help them remember what God had done, a meal that they were to eat once a year, every year from then on. And these were the instructions. The meal was to be called the Passover and was to be celebrated on the 14th day of the month. No foreigners were allowed to take part in the meal. This was a meal for the Israelite nation only. For the feast, they had to eat a one-year-old perfect lamb whose bones had not been broken, and they had to eat it with unleavened bread. And the Jews did celebrate this feast through their history with some gaps, and they still do. They remember that God brought them out of slavery that by his strong hand he delivered them from slavery, from the Egyptians. They remember that because of the blood over the, over the doors on the house, God passed over their house and didn't judge them along with the Egyptians. And they were still celebrating the Passover at the time when Jesus was on earth. So if we move forward into the New Testament and Luke chapter 7, we find there Jesus and his disciples preparing for the Passover. This is Luke chapter 7, um, 7 to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So we see here that well over a thousand years after the Israelites were freed from slavery and delivered from Egypt, all those years since the Passover was initiated, the Jews were still eating the Passover and remembering its significance. And Jesus and his disciples were also continuing to observe the feast. So Jesus said to Peter and John, go, prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And this would have been a normal annual event for them. At this point, everything was just the same as it always had been. The same as it had been for countless generations. And at this point, the disciples still had no idea that everything was about to change. If we read the next few verses, we see Jesus and the disciples now eating the Passover together. 
And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup, this cup, is poured out for you. Is that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus takes this ceremony so familiar to the disciples, so central to their identity as Jews, and he changes it forever. He took some of the food in that meal and he identified it with himself. Now elsewhere he, he said that, um, he used the words today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. Well, he doesn't use those words here, but effectively he's saying the same thing. The disciples don't understand it yet, but Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this celebration. The Passover meal has always been pointing to me. Now I am here as its fulfillment, and I'm going to enlarge it beyond your expectations. See, this was a crossover point in history. Up till now, everything had been pointing forward to this point. But from now on, everything would look back to it. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And notice he didn't take the lamb, which perhaps in some ways would have been a more natural symbol. But Jesus knew that after this, there would be no need of any more sacrifices. Never again would a lamb be sacrificed for sin. The lamb sacrificed for that Passover meal would be the last that would ever need to be sacrificed again. He himself was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus was the Passover lamb. See, it had always been about him. If we look back with the benefit of hindsight, we can see some of the parallels that were woven in from the beginning. So you remember that the Passover lamb had to be brought into the household for four days to live with the family before it was sacrificed. It lived amongst the people that it was going to be sacrificed for. So Jesus came and lived amongst men. He identified himself with them, with us. He became one of us, Emmanuel, God with us, God made flesh. And the Passover lamb was, of course, a perfect lamb, spotless and without defects. It wasn't good enough just to offer any old lamb. The Passover lamb had to be the best, the most perfect of all, the most precious and valuable lamb. So Jesus was the perfect son of God, the most precious and valuable being of all, a man, but without sin, the spotless lamb of God. When he himself was sacrificed shortly after this Passover meal, John records that none of his bones were broken. Now you remember that the thieves on either side of him on the cross um, had their legs broken so they would die more quickly. But Jesus was found to be already dead. So they didn't do the same to him. And again, this explicitly points, um, links Jesus with the Passover lamb, which was not to have any legs, uh, bones broken. 
So Jesus was saying, I am the Passover lamb and I am going to be sacrificed. My body is going to be given for you. In the future, you won't celebrate the Passover. You won't sacrifice a lamb again. In future, you will break bread and you will remember me. Going back to verse 20 of Luke 7, we read, Likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out is poured out for you is the um, new covenant in my blood. See, when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, the homes that had the lamb's blood over the doors were passed over by the angel of death. Those that were covered by the blood of the lamb escaped God's judgment and were rescued from slavery. And throughout the Old Testament times, lambs and animals were sacrificed um, um, for, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was saying here, I am the Passover lamb whose blood is to be poured out. And with the giving of my blood, I'm fulfilling all the sacrifices of the past and initiating a new covenant. In the future, you won't be saved by the blood of an animal, but if you are covered by my blood, you will be saved. From now on, things are different. From now on, you enter a new era. See, the blood of the original Passover lamb was for the Israelites. Their deliverance from Egypt effectively marked the beginning of the Jewish nation. Now, Jesus said, I'm making a new covenant with my blood. And this is for all nations. No longer is God working out his purposes just through the Jewish nation. Now it is for all men. He's working out his purpose through the church, and that includes us. And just as there are parallels between the Passover lamb way back in Egypt and Jesus, so there are close parallels between the Israelites and us. And I want to bring us now into the story as well. So if we start at the beginning, we remember the Israelites were in slavery. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. They had no hope. Their future was one of forced labor under a cruel master, followed by death. They had no freedom, no life to call their own. And there was nothing that they could do about it. And the Bible tells us that we too were in the same state. In Ephesians, we're reminded that you too were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And Paul tells us that we were slaves to sin. And as a consequence, the only end for us was death. We were oppressed by a cruel master. We had no freedom and we had no hope. And just as the Israelites could do nothing about it, so there was nothing that we could do about it. But then for the Israelites, God intervened. Where they were powerless to change their situation, God himself acted in power. And we too were dead in our sins. And we were powerless to act against the powers that held us. But God, in his mercy, intervened. God acted to do what we could never do ourselves. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that while we were still weak, while we were unable to help ourselves, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This was God's initiative, God's action on our behalf. Now the Israelites were told to take a spotless male lamb, keep it among them for a period, then kill it and put the blood over the door. And households that were covered by the blood of the lamb in this way would be spared from the judgment that God was bringing against Egyptians. And in this way, God brought freedom and deliverance to the Israelites. And now for us, God has given a lamb, a pure, spotless, sinless lamb, a lamb that came and lived among us, a lamb that was killed. The blood of that lamb was shed for us. Peter says, you know that you are ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious lamb blood of Christ, like that of a lamb 
without blemish or spot. Now you know that for many of us these are very familiar words and I think that they can lose their impact. We live in a society where blood and death are far removed from most of us most of the time. So I just want to pause for a moment and just reflect on what I'm saying here. Think back to, is, uh, to, to Egypt and, um, and all those Israelite households. They all took a lamb into their house and lived with it for a few days. And it would have become a bit like a pet, wouldn't it? And what I'm going to say is shocking, but I think it's important that sometimes we don't gloss over the reality of what happened here. So they had to take this innocent little lamb and they had to kill it. And there would have been lots of blood. And it would have been horrible. See, there was a cost. The redemption of the Israelites came at the cost of a lamb. Our redemption came at the cost of the blood of the Son of God. It was a real cost. There's a danger for us 2,000 years on that the death of Jesus becomes sanitized. That the rough and bloody wooden cross becomes a piece of shiny golden jewellery. But the truth is that it was terrible and horrific and ugly. See, our freedom wasn't brought lightly. Jesus paid the price that we could never pay, and we live in the good of this. If we've come to God in repentance, then we have Jesus' blood over us. And if we have his blood over us, we will be spared the judgment that we deserve. We will be passed over. The price has already been paid. And Ephesians 4 reminds us, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Jesus, we who were once alienated from God are brought back into relationship with him. As God led the Egyptians out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, out of captivity, and brought them into the promised land, into freedom, into life as his people, so it is with us. If we accept the sacrifice of Jesus in our place, if we are covered by his blood, then we too are taken out of captivity, out of slavery, out of bondage to sin, out from Satan's kingdom of darkness, and we are brought into this place of freedom, brought into a new kingdom, into the kingdom of God, to be one of his own people, to live with him forever in his presence. In the book of Revelation, John has a vision of heaven, and there he sees Jesus seated on the throne with all the elders and angels and multitudes crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing. This is Jesus as he is now, glorified, triumphant. And it's this Jesus that is coming again when heaven comes to earth and we will be with him forever. See, God has written us into his story, a story that began so long ago, a story that involved the rescuing of the Israelites from the Egyptians to be God's chosen people, and now a story that now involves us, because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, shed his blood for us at the cross of Calvary. And those of us who are covered by his blood are now part of the family of God, one of his chosen people. And it's a story that includes us right into the future again when we will be with the Lamb of God forever. So as we draw to a conclusion, let me just draw a few points of application. 
first. Just as God came in judgment over the land of Egypt all those years ago, so he will come again in judgment against all of those who have ever lived. And again, those that have the blood of the Lamb over them will be passed over. They will come into God's presence, into his promised land. But those that don't have the blood over them will have to bear the punishment of eternal separation from God. So don't let that be you. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know God, he's calling you today. The blood of Jesus is available for you. But don't wait until you feel that you're good enough because you never will be. But it's not about us. He is perfect and that's what counts. Respond to his love this morning and know forgiveness, freedom, acceptance into God's family and into his great inheritance. Second, if you've accepted Jesus' sacrifice and you know that his blood is over you, remember that just as the Israelites were freed from captivity, so you have been freed from Satan's power. So walk in freedom. Paul tells us in Galatians, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You have a new Lord and Master. Don't go back to the old one. You're in a new kingdom with a new king. And his kingdom is one of power. Power to be restored. Power to be forgiven. Power to be free. And if that's not your experience, please ask one of us to pray with you. We want you to live in the reality of the blessing that Jesus died to bring. Third, I've talked a bit about the cost that Jesus paid, perhaps more than some of you would have liked. And even then, what I've said is just the visible tip of the iceberg. As we reflect on the cost, one of the things that it highlights is the seriousness of our sin. We sing a song with, us, uh, with the line, uh, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And that's absolutely true. But you know, there's a danger with that, that as we focus on that, that leads us into guilt. And that's not where God wants us. I would suggest an alternate line there could be, it was his love that held him there. And in fairness, that song starts with the line, how great the Father's love for us, so vast and without measure. And this is what God wants us to know. And it's that thought I want to leave us with this morning. That as we think of Jesus, our Passover lamb, as we reflect on the severity of the punishment that he bore for us, we just get a glimpse into the power of God's love for us. This is love, John tells us. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. Jesus, for his part, was willing to lay down his life for us. Even when we were Christ's enemies, he died for us. This is love, powerful and strong. This is grace, lavish and free. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so I want us to fix our eyes on him and give him our love, our adoration and our praise. I mentioned John's vision in the book of Revelation. There he saw the elders and the angels and the multitudes all crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honour and glory and blessing. 
That's going on right now with Jesus at the right hand of the Father in that place of highest honour. So as we come and share communion now together, let's join with the hosts of heaven and let's bring our praise and our love and our adoration to the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb that is now glorified and the Lamb that is coming again.